Well, you may have noticed by now that this really isn't the series we're working through, an in-depth exposition of Galatians 5, 13 through 26. It's an in-depth exposition of verses 16 and verse 25, two twin gems set in this passage of gold, to walk and to keep in step with the Spirit. Now, this morning, I wanted to get to joy, to the joy of the Spirit that is in believers, and Lord willing, we'll get there soon, but uh, we're really going the, the opposite direction of joy today and are instead going to take a look at righteous anger. Righteous anger. Is anger appropriate as we walk in step with the Spirit? Well, I'll give you the answer up front and then the rest of the time, spend the rest of our time explaining how this is, but the answer is it must be. Anger must be appropriate. There is a kind of anger that, that comes from our regenerated, spirit-directed, new nature. I mean, if we have a new relationship with sin, if we have a new relationship with God, if His Spirit is in us, and if He hates iniquity, if He hates sin, if He hates injustice, then it is only right that His Spirit comes and brings a degree of anger against everything that is evil and unrighteous and unholy. So we know we ought to have it. I mean, what would you think of a person who was apathetic uh, about child abuse or didn't really worry too much about extortion or genocide or the railing of people against God insulting and degrading Him? If you love God and you love people, you must be angry when God is maligned or, his, or, uh, or people are being trampled or the innocent are suffering. If you love what is righteous, you must hate and be angry about what is unrighteous. And we all know this. There are times when anger not only is acceptable, but is the right response. A Christian sometimes must respond with anger because the Holy Spirit in you will sometimes be incensed and outraged by what is happening around it in this fallen world, around Him. But there is a problem. And it's not a small problem. There is a very big problem. We are prone to sin. We are prone to misunderstanding. And above all, we are prone to think too highly of ourselves. Prone to think that our anger is just. Always. And these things work together to muddy the waters and make it incredibly difficult to discern whether or not our anger is righteous or is actually working against the kingdom of God. Whether our anger is justified or whether it is to be repented of. And we, we all know and all know too well the, the dangers and the damage that anger is capable of unleashing in our lives. We do. We really are wrestling with what Paul tells us in Ephesians. Be angry and do not sin. How do I do that? 
you know, maybe before we, before we really dig into this, um, one of the things that was very convicting for me in the preparation of this sermon, very convicting for me, was how many times I thought my anger was righteous and justified, and then after searching through the Scriptures and seeing what it says realizing that most of the anger I thought was righteous was not righteous at all and actually very wicked. And I don't want everyone in here to hear me saying these things and think, yeah, Corey's got it all figured out. I don't. I have been wrestling with this a lot this past week, the anger in me. And I say that because I want you to, 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 to take it seriously. Anger can be so destructive and so dangerous and, in its proper context, good. And we need, as believers, to be able to distinguish and, and wall in our anger, our passions. And so this morning, what I really want is for us to be able to understand how to discern and manage anger so that it can be called righteous without spilling over its bounds and getting out of control. So let's take a look at Galatians 5, 13 through 26, our passage for this series. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things. There is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, turn our eyes to you, that we would see all of your attributes perfected in Christ. And I pray this morning that you would also turn our eyes in one sense towards us, that we would not be looking at other people and pointing fingers and saying this is good for them, but that God, you would first deal with us, that we would not be like the one who says, 
Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in our own. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us this morning what righteous anger looks like so that we would, if we are angry, be angry and not sin. Lord, this is so contrary to our nature. This is so contrary to the flesh. This is not what we are like at all when we come to you. And I pray, Lord, this morning would be a time of refining, of pruning, of changing, all of which are painful and all of which are so necessary and blessed. And Lord, I pray for anyone this morning who hears this message and looks at themselves and says, oh, for more righteousness, that they would know Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And even their conviction and desires to be more like Christ, Lord, is a blessing. Lord, be with us this morning. Help me to preach and give us humble hearts to hear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We live in an age of rage. Anger is rampant and is unrestrained. In fact, it's, it's probably the most celebrated virtue, if you could call it that, in 2020. Be angry is slogan material. With an endless supply of, the ang- uh, of things to be angry about, it doesn't look like it's going to be going away anytime soon. Outrage is how our society responds when it doesn't get its own way. Anger is how we react when we're challenged or criticized. Anger is rapidly becoming the only way anybody knows how to deal with anything. And and even in this day of of hyper-politicization, one thing that is not partisan is this. Wherever you are in politics, whatever side of the issue you're on, everyone is angry. It's viewed as a kind of indicator as to how serious You are, and for many matters on every side of the political equation, anger is the fuel. It's on t-shirts, it's on flags, it's in books, it's in chants, it's in songs and on signs and on headlines. In fact, it's reached a point where people get angry if you're not angry enough. (laughs) You don't have to be scrolling the news to see this, by the way. Just, Just talk to somebody for more than 10 minutes and you'll learn in short order they're angry about something. They're angry about the economy. They're angry about the prime minister, the president. They're angry about the laws and the lockdowns and the courts. Angry about Putin. Angry about oil prices being high. Some are angry that they still aren't high enough. It's almost become an animating principle of humanity in our day. It's almost become what drives people. What motivates them. They're anger and their wrath. It's, it's become a kind of jet fuel propelling our society forward into worse and worse places. How can we as Christians speak about joy and about peace and about patience and about kindness and gentleness and self-control when this powerful Rampant, uncontrolled outrage is infecting every thought we have. I mean, it's true. It's in the air we breathe today. 
how many of our thoughts, how many of our passions, even godly ambitions are, are tainted with this kind of fury. And we're tempted to say, well, but it's righteous. It's good. Righteous anger. I've been wronged. Injustice has been done. Terrible things are taking place. I should be angry. God is angry. Well, very well, and that, that may be true. It may be true. And it may be unrighteousness that was the spark that ignited your passions in this way. And that's good. There are things to be angry about. But how do you know that this anger in you, which began righteously, has remained righteous? How do you know that your anger is godly? How do you know that after having been ignited in a good way, it hasn't run amok and taken on all the characteristics of the world? How should a Christian be angry and not sin? The first thing to do is to understand what exactly anger is. And speaking broadly, it is a combative emotion. It's aroused in us by things we find offensive and things we want to see undone. Robert Law, in his book on the emotions of Christ, he defines it, defines anger as a, as a force, an explosive liberation of physical force, which for the moment causes a man to rise above his normal self. That is his definition. And as to what it does, it gives physical courage, overcoming the paralyzing effect of fear, so that a man will hurl himself furiously upon an antagonist that, were he not inflamed, he would have otherwise ignored. He goes on to say it reinforces moral courage too. It gives outspokenness and telling force to rebukes which otherwise would remain unspoken or would fall timidly from halting lips. It wings the words of the orator to lofty heights in denouncing wrongs, and it emboldens one to tear the mask from hypocrisy and to lash the popular vices of society and oppose their wild and foolish superstitions. Every movement, every movement of righteous reform, every crusade against evil has had not only a heart throbbing for the victims of injustice, but a holy anger against the state of things and against those who stubbornly uphold the state which inflicts the wrong. Now what is striking when you hear that definition is that it sounds like anger is a good thing. It can get things done. It has the power to accomplish and to achieve and to make bold the timid and to give force to our words. And some of you maybe have experienced this. You seem to speak with much more conviction when you're a little bit upset. Whether you're right or wrong is besides the point. Well, the point Robert Law is making in his definition is that anger is a natural emotion. And on its own, it is neither good nor evil. Anger, like most, maybe like all emotions, it's neutral. And so Law concludes, it's merely a force like gunpowder for the soul. And depending on where it is aimed, it may blast away the obstructions of evil or defend from the fires of temptation or may work a devastating injury to ourselves and to others.
So there is a place for anger. In a, in a sense, it's the thermometer of the soul. It has its place. If you're never troubled by anything at all, it may be a sign of a cold and calloused heart, not a controlled one that it can easily be mistaken for. There are, there are things we should be hot about. And anger has its uses as we've seen. It can embolden. It can give force to actions that otherwise would have fallen flat. Maybe it's most helpful to compare it to a fire. You can use fire for many good and life-giving things. By it, you heat your homes. You boil water to kill diseases. You make metals hot and workable. You cook your foods. You light your way. But if left unchecked, and if left unrestrained, how quickly can it destroy everything around it? Those closest are first consumed. Cities have fallen to it. Forests have been scorched and made useless. People have been disfigured and killed by its flames. It is a force for good and for tremendous evil. In the same way, anger in its proper place and used wisely and appropriately, guided by the word, it can accomplish much good. But left unchecked and unrestrained, it will spill its bounds and wreak havoc all around you. And most of us have endured this, haven't we? Happens all the time. In fact, it happens so often that anger, even anger that begins rightly, often turns deadly very fast, and it will burn everything in its path, friend or foe alike. Why? Why does it do this? Because even though anger is a neutral emotion, we are not neutral people. And this combative passion, right, here's the rub. This combative passion tends to bring out the worst in us, not the best. It can paralyze you to sympathy. It can kill compassion. It tends to confuse and not to clarify. I mean, how often have you said things in a fit of rage that afterward you knew they were not true and you would do anything you could to round them back up and bury them again, but they're out now. Anger has released things that ought not to have been released. Anger in our hands, it's like a torch in the hands of a, of a two-year-old. Nothing is safe from being scorched. And that's a threat we all face even if the anger begins righteously. It risks spilling out and burning what we did not intend to be consumed. More often than not, I think anger begins unrighteously. And it's ignited merely because of an offense against us. We've been wronged, we've been sinned against, or we've been annoyed, whatever generally makes you angry. And because we have suffered in some way, some shape, some form, we become enraged and rise to our own defense, never giving place to the vengeance of God. And so this anger, the danger it poses, is enormous. Not because it's unwholesome in itself, but because we, in self-righteousness, wield it so viciously. This is the reason why the Bible is full of warnings against anger. It's full of warnings because God knows us and He knows how apt we are to think we're justified in our anger when the reality is we are completely in the wrong. 
And even if our anger began righteously, it didn't stay righteous for long. There are many verses, many verses, and we're going to look at a number of them, that aim to cause you to put the brakes on when you feel that burning in your chest and, and the tension in your jaw. Verses that strive, aim to make you very suspicious of your outrage and verses that admonish you to make sure that your anger is contained and channeled appropriately. Verses that are like, uh, well, when you have a bonfire, if you want to keep it safe, you put stones all around, right? Why do you put the stones there? To keep it from spilling over. If you have a fire in your home, you have a furnace, a, a metal box to keep the flames contained. These verses teach us what righteous anger looks like and they serve to keep the flames contained from burning what they weren't intended to consume. The Bible teaches us to do what Ephesians 4.26 commands. Be angry and do not sin. It teaches us to distinguish between sinful anger and righteous anger. It helps us by building walls like the stones around the fire pit to contain and control and prevent what stirs your passions from becoming ungodly. And the first we'll look at is Psalm 37, 8. Psalm 37, 8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. This is a pretty strong prohibition right here. If anything, this warns us that our anger is to be held in check. Now, in the context of the psalm, and this is very important, in the context of the psalm, this is a warning against constant outrage and anxiety. Constant. You see, throughout the psalm, the psalmist laments about the evil that abounds in the land. He says, the wicked prosper. They get away with all of the awful things they do. There is no justice. Everyone does what is wrong, and they get away with it. The courts cover for them. Nobody opposes them. Injustice is multiplied. The poor and the needy are devoured. People mock justice. And worst of all, they mock God and they completely disregard Him. He's not in a single decision that anybody makes. That is the context of, verse 37, of, of, of Psalm 37. That's what's happening in that psalm. And verse 8 warns that godlessness in the land can tempt you to be perpetually provoked. Godlessness in the land can tempt you to be always angry, at least a little bit. The, the, the temperature of your soul is always at a fever. It's hotter than it would be at rest. It's hotter than it would be if it was healthy. That's what's being prohibited here. This does not lead to anything good, the, the psalmist tells us. It prevents you from thinking, thinking reasonably, which is what happens in the psalm. It prevents you from being charitable. prevents you from loving your enemies. It, it makes you susceptible to errors in your thinking and in your judgment in the same way if you have a fever and, and you get very warm. How many of you have ever had a, a very high fever? You don't think clearly. You don't. It can affect your mind in the same way being angry all the time about the state of the world around you can cause your judgment to get cloudy. 
It's more than just an anger. It's, a, it's an anxious anger that can never rest in the fact that God will avenge every evil ever done. That God will care for His people and, and right the wrongs. And it tends only to more evil. So, uh, this is so important because I, I don't want you to hear this and say, so then I should never be concerned about the things in the world. No. Things that are evil in the world will stir up righteous anger in your soul. We need to be careful that it does not fester into something evil itself. And it will do that if it's always being entertained. Righteous anger is not constant. It isn't always dwelling under the surface. Righteous anger comes, but it also goes. When anger settles in, right, and it has its own closet or, or maybe a guest room in the house of your soul, it's become a threat. It has become unrighteous and needs to be evicted. Always being angry at the state of everything in the world is not righteous. Always being angry is not righteous, but sinful. And even a kind of worldly anger that is unbefitting for Christians. And then there's Matthew 5.22. Another stone in the wall. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fires of hell. So previously, anger that is constant is unrighteous but sinful. So righteous anger dissipates. It sometimes, it, 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 not sometimes, it goes away. Here, anger is likened to murder. I mean, certainly this is the opposite of righteous anger, whatever righteous anger is. This is sinful at its core. Well, what makes a difference here? I think it's obvious. The anger that Jesus warns about here in Matthew is anger that seeks to harm or wishes ill upon a man or a woman made in the image of God. And any time anger that seeks uh, to do harm to another person or that causes you to insult them either to their face or in your heart you grumble against them and slander them and condemn them, that anger is sinful. Anger that would harm and hurt others is always wrong. And in Matthew 5, 22, Jesus is working backward. One who is aware of the violence in a person who is angry could easily make the connection uh, to murder. But then he warns against insulting. Literally, he says, do not call them rakah. Empty-headed is what it means. Which means to have contempt for another person. And then a warning against calling them fools. Telling them, you always do things in the wrong way. You never do anything right. That they're stupid and they don't know how to do anything correctly. And that's the order that you see. And so you see a progression. The hateful person is annoyed. They're irritated with the, the way that other people are doing things. And then that becomes contempt for that person. They begin to look down on them. And then they become outraged so easily, which is murder in the heart. And so contempt and annoyance and being irritated with someone is like a, a breach in the furnace wall that allows the fires of rage to escape. So if you're easily annoyed, if, you're, if you are irritable to your spouse or to your children, to your coworkers, your students, watch out. You have a fire burning in a paper bag. And until you repent of irritability, which often causes much more trouble than whatever is making you annoyed, 
Until you recognize and you see that as the danger that it is, your passions will always be in danger of bursting their restraints. Your anger will always be murderously sinful. It's similar to Colossians 3.8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. They all go together. Wrath and anger and malice, right? wanting to do harm to somebody else, ill intent towards another person, uh, slander, slandering somebody else, obscene talk. In the context, this isn't just obscene talk, as you might think immediately of obscene talk. This is obscene talk about another person. If you don't have a handle on these, any righteous anger against a legitimate offense will never stay righteous for long. Righteous anger never has contempt that aims to hurt another person. So if you want to know, is my anger righteous? Do you want to hurt somebody else? If you do, the anger is not righteous. And by the way, for our anger to be legitimate and righteous, it must always be aimed at sin. And I say that and everyone goes, well, yes, of course, what else am I going to be angry about? Jonathan Edwards made a resolution never to become angry at an inanimate object. Has anybody ever been, uh, anyone here, they ever been working at something and it didn't quite go the way they wanted it to go and they started to get really angry about it? Bolt wouldn't go on, hard to reach place. You, you were trying to fix something and you broke it. Your computer wouldn't work right. I remember my first year at, uh, at Acadia uh, University. Everyone was given a laptop. It was called the Acadia Advantage. I was walking to class one day, probably a month in, papers were starting to become due, and I hear this awful noise coming from the fourth floor of one of the dormitory windows. And I hear a loud groan and a scream, and then a laptop comes flying out of the window. <laughs> the, the person was outraged, so angry that this laptop which has no will of its own wasn't doing what he wanted it to do maybe it had something to do with a printer but we get angry at things that aren't sin we get angry at inanimate objects that hinder us or inconvenience us at best Jonathan Edwards resolved that he would never do this because he said it's always wrong why because ultimately, it's anger against God who is in control of all inanimate objects. And they don't have a will or a capacity to sin at all. It reminds me of the story of Uzzah and the ark. You remember Uzzah and the ark were, were going along and the ark toppled on the cart and it looked like it was going to fall and Uzzah reached out his hand to stop it from falling in the mud and God struck Uzzah dead. If the ark had fallen into the mud, what would have happened? The ark would have gotten dirty. He didn't want it to get dirty. If you've heard R.C. Sproul speaking on this, he says, but what is mud? It's dirt and water. And when you mix dirt and water together, they make mud every time because that's exactly what God has ordained them to do and there is nothing sinful about the mud. The mistake that Uzzah made was that he thought his hand was cleaner than the mud. But Uzzah was the one who had sinned. 
inanimate objects don't sin and therefore we should not be angry at the inconveniences they cause us because those inconveniences are what God has ordained for us. So for anger to be righteous, it has to be against sin. So anger that is righteous must not be constant, must not aim to hurt others, must be against sin. Another verse is Ephesians 4, 26-27, which we've quoted in part already. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Here are two more restraints to prevent righteous anger from becoming unrighteous or that would help you to distinguish between anger that is righteous or anger that is sinful. One, do not go to bed angry. Don't do it, especially if you're angry at another person. Make things right. That's a, a command here in Ephesians. Make it right. Certainly make it right before you go to sleep. Stay up all night if you have to. Going to bed angry. I don't know how it works, but it, it has a way of cementing something in your mind, doesn't it? For good or for bad, what's on your mind when you go to sleep, it just seems to take a stronger route throughout the night. You never want to do that with anger. This is how anger can get mastery over you how it can, can gain a foothold in your thinking, how it can begin to animate your thoughts and, and drive you going to bed angry about anything. It can destroy your marriage. It can destroy your children. It can destroy your relationship with your boss. Everything is in danger if you go to bed angry. So don't do it. Don't lay your head down huffing and puffing, mad about something. Get it resolved. And if you can't speak to the person, then speak to the Lord until your heart is at rest. Let anger drive you to prayer and then to peace. Do that and you'll use your anger rightly. Ignore it and you're only going to hurt yourself. Secondly, anytime anger tempts you to sin, from, from this verse, secondly, it's sinful anger. Anger that tempts you to sin is sinful. Anger that asks you to do what God forbids or forbids you from doing what God commands is sinful. And not only that, it gives an opportunity to the devil. Dwelling on it, dwelling on what has made you angry, staying in that place of anger will make you more susceptible to temptations. It pollutes your thinking and clouds your mind and makes you easy prey for the lion seeking someone whom he may devour. And so if your anger is causing sin to look attractive... If anger is making something that is wrong look right, it is sinful anger. Or if anger is overstaying its welcome, it's become sinful and has to be put away. Now probably the most important difference between righteous anger and sinful anger is whether you are in control of it or it is in control of you. That's the most important thing. Really, it is anger is never righteous if it is what is controlling you. Once that happens, it is sinful in every instance. It's out of control, which is what the Proverbs say every time anger is mentioned. Proverbs 14, 29, 
Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 5.18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contentions. Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit better than he who takes a city. 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook an offense. 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 7.9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. And James, in the New Testament, James summarizes it all in chapter 1, 19 through 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, they're in control, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So you see here that the danger is not so much in the anger, but how quickly that anger flares up. In fact, being slow to... Anger is assumed in these passages, isn't it? Being slow to anger is praised. Being hot-tempered is condemned. You've seen this before. People who fly off the handle at the slightest provocation. Angry at the drop of a hat. They have a temper like a firecracker with a short fuse. Have you ever had a string of firecrackers? I used to get them whenever I could find them. And, uh, and you take them all apart, and they've got a little gray fuse about an inch long. And when you light it, you've got about half a second before it blows up. If you've ever done that, I can't be the only one who's done that. <laughs> if you ever do that, you know how quickly these firecrackers explode. You have about a half a second, sometimes less, a sparkle swoop down, and they'll blow up right away. But if your temper is like that, if it's... If from, from, from spark to explosion is that fast, it has mastery over you. In a quick-tempered person, their anger controls them. As soon as they're offended, they explode. They have no restraints. They cannot help themselves. They have no power over it. It's a fruit of the flesh in Galatians 5.20, a fit of rage. And there is nothing righteous about it. It's compared elsewhere to, to drunkenness. The person has lost their senses. They've lost their wit. They've lost their ability to think and reason. And you say, well, how can I tell if, if, if the, 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 the temper that's exploding, if I'm, if, if I'm out of control? Do you have the capacity of your reason and your wit? You can restrain it. When that is gone, you become like a brute beast or a rampaging bull. Listen, there is and cannot be anything righteous or redeeming about that. It is wrong, it's sinful, it is condemned in every instance and universally forbidden in Scripture. For anger to be righteous, it must be controlled, it must be restrained, it must be mastered, and not the other way around. 
The moment it masters you, you've entered into sinful territory and will do nothing you later on will not be repenting of. And the opposite of that, righteous anger must be slow. Slow to anger. Now, what does that mean? It means three things. One, we saw it already, it's not quick. Meaning, it's not out of control. Because slow anger can actually come very quickly. That's the second point, is that it's filtered. Right? It's filtered through the channels that we've been looking at to decipher whether or not it's righteous or not. And you can do that if you're in control. You can ask, is this anger against sin? Is this anger seeking to hurt somebody else? What am I angry about? If you're in control, you can actually do all of that quite quickly. But slow to anger means that it's not erupting un unrestrained. You have time to ask and have taken time to ask, is this anger righteous or is it sinful? Is it justified or am I in danger? Does it pass the test? And if it doesn't pass the test, you put it away. And if you're in control, you can do that. And third, slow to anger means godly anger. Over and over and over again in Scripture, you read that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Psalm 103.8 The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And for anger to be righteous, it must be not the anger of man, but the same sort of anger that the Lord God has. And isn't it interesting here that His anger, which is slow in coming, is paired with steadfast love and mercy and grace. We really wouldn't think to put those things together, would we? Anger really has no room for mercy and grace and love, or so we think. But actually, anger, where those three things are absent, is not and never can be righteous anger. For anger to not be sin, it must not be devoid of mercy and grace and love. It, it must be the kind of anger that God has. You say, well, what does all of this have to do with walking in the Spirit? It has a lot to do with walking in the Spirit. Because until this dragon is slain, until this monster of anger is contained, how are you ever going to be kind or gentle or peaceable? This is like trying to have peace when there's a monster roaming in the land ready to devour everyone around. It's impossible. You know, James was right when he said the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. The anger that is so common to us, the anger that comes so easily and so naturally never works for a good cause because righteous anger is not what makes you angry. It's not you getting angry about things that happen to you. Righteous anger is the anger of God that the Spirit is working in you. In a sense, for anger to be righteous, God's Spirit that indwells you is angry, and then it comes out. It's not that you've gotten angry about something that's happened, and now I'm going to take that and, and say, it's righteous. 
Righteous anger is the spirit in you righteous and angry about not just offenses against you, but against what outrages the Lord God. And we're not only angry at what He is angry about, but for anger to be righteous, we are angry like God is angry. And if you want to know the difference between you getting worked up or the Spirit at work in you, you most clearly see this in Christ, the Spirit-filled man. So how does Jesus get angry? He never resented his circumstances. Not once. And very often... What we call anger is really just a bad temper or an irritability. And those, those things never made Jesus angry. And an anger born from them can never be called righteous. Irritable anger is always sinful anger. And Jesus never did that, but He accepted whatever irritation and circumstance came as the will of His Father. It's like Chimmy, uh, who insulted David. You remember David is being run out of Jerusalem. Absalom, his son, is, has come in and, and taken the city. He's running for his life and, and Shimei, one of his enemies, comes and he's throwing rocks at him and he's insulting him. And then one of David's men comes up to David and says, you're the king, you want me to strike this insolent worm down? And David answers, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, what have you done so? Why have you said this? David said, he is cursing me because God has put it on him to curse me. And who am I to take vengeance against him? Jesus never sought his own vindication. Sins made him angry, yes, but never sin against himself. You realize that? He was never angry at sin against himself. And not only was he not angry at his enemies... He was not angry at the incompetence of his disciples. We get angry at the incompetence of others, right? When they're careless, when they make more work for us, or if they're not as passionate about a certain thing as we are. The Lord was never angry with faithless, blundering, disappointing disciples. Now, this doesn't mean he was pleased with them all the time. He took them to task. He was serious with them. He trained them. He told them when they were wrong. But never do we see him railing against them. He's not angry at the inability of others to understand. He lamented it. Oh, faithless generation. He wasn't outraged by it. And he wasn't angry when he didn't receive the respect that he deserved. And how much respect did he reserve? Did he deserve? He... He was never outraged at his own wounded dignity, right? When Jesus was insulted, when he was called a, a drunkard and a liar and an ally of the devil, he met his accusations with an appeal to reason. He, he made an appeal to them he was going to discuss. He said, you're accusing me of this, but you know it's not true. He didn't get angry and lose his wits. And at the cross, when they're mocking him and taunting him and torturing him, Far from being angry, he had a sense of pity towards them. He prays for them. He's laying his life down. He lays his life down for the thief who moments prior was deriding him. 
He intercedes for his murderers. He appeals to his father for their forgiveness. If he would be outraged anywhere, it would be here, wouldn't it? At the injustice of the cross, at the immense suffering heaped upon him. And the one thing you do not find at the cross, as unbelievable as it is, as a hint of anger. And in Christ, we see what righteous anger looks like. He's not angry over personal annoyance or insult or indignity or harm. His anger never had to do with wrongs that he himself suffered. And personal anger, anger born from what someone does to us, has no place in the Christian walk. In Christ, there is an anger that could only be rightly called an anger of love. There are many places we could look to see Christ angry, denouncing the Pharisees in Matthew 23, cleansing the temple in John's gospel. But I think the clearest place to see this in the Bible is Mark chapter 3, verse 1. You don't have to turn there, but let me read Mark 3, verse 1. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, that's the Pharisees, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so they might come and accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to him, Is it lawful? And he said to them, so now he's speaking to the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. Anger. He's angry about what's happening. Grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus was indignant at the Pharisees. They looked at their fellow man with contempt. They hated the prospect of him being healed on the, on the Sabbath in a, in a way that they had twisted and profaned. And Jesus sees what they're doing. He sees that when he asks them a question that they all know the answer to, <coughs> they clamp their mouths shut. They clamp their mouths in silence. They're gritting their teeth. They know they're wrong, but they're not going to give an inch. There are two angers here. Two angers on full display. One is the anger of the Pharisees who are furious that they have been criticized. They're furious that Jesus is defying their traditions. They're furious that they're being embarrassed in front of the, all of the people. It's a, a selfish anger. Obviously, it cares nothing about the man who is being healed. It only cares about what it will lose. And where does it lead them? That kind of selfish anger. It leads them to malice and to contempt and to murder, literally. They leave, and what does their anger motivate them to do? To go and seek to destroy Jesus. Anger that seeks to destroy, and then you see the Lord who is angry. He is indignant at them. He hated their unkindness. He hated their cruelty towards a crippled man. But not only is He angry, He is grieved at their hardness of heart. Anger at the people and grieved for the people. Here is the anger of God and the anger that is righteous. The passions are inflamed. He's furious over the sin. And he is filled with grief over the hard-heartedness of these men. He is filled with grief that they would do such a things. They don't know mercy. 
They don't know grace. They're on their way to hell. And Jesus is angry at their sin. He is angry at their calloused, uncaring cruelty. And at the same time, He is broken for them that they would be so calloused and so cruel. He is grieved, wounded by the hard-heartedness of others. Why? Because He would see them forsake those things that they so obstinately enjoy. He yearns over them for victory. He wants truth to triumph in their souls. He wants to see men and women saved, even His enemies saved. And He wants to see them enjoying the fruits of salvation and He is angry when they reject it. He is angry to see them continue in their suicidal stubbornness. It inflamed his deepest, deepest compassion. It was an anger, that would, an anger that would tear out the stubborn heart, take the blinders from their eyes. It was, it was the kind of displeasure that you might have when you aim to do good to your child and they refuse. You try to do something good for them. You know this is best for them and they say no and they march on and they suffer for it. There is a place for anger there so long as it is righteous, so long as it's a fire walled in and not wild. But how can you not be angry when you see the ones that you love sealing their own destruction and harm? In Christ's case, seeing these men, His kinsmen, sealing their own eternal destruction, a doom that He had come to save them from. What does that anger produce? Grief and compassion. An anger that is alloyed with mercy and grace and love. That is the anger of God. That is the anger of the Spirit of God. That is the anger of righteousness. And that anger does not seek their destruction, but only to destroy whatever would destroy them. The anger of God and the wrath of God is only poured out when every avenue of deliverance is extinguished. And that is what makes anger righteous. It seeks the good of the one who causes it. Righteous anger seeks the good of the one who causes it. It does not rage and rail against them and if it does, it is only and clearly for their good as a warning coming righteously from the one who is inflamed. So to those here this morning who are angry, not righteously angry, sinfully angry, the Lord is angry about your sin. And because He is angry about your sin, his passions are inflamed to see you set free from the destruction that it would cause you. And so if you're an angry person, He wants to make you joyful and peaceable. And if you're angry about the wrong things, He wants you to be angry about the right things. And if you've hurt people in your anger, He is willing to forgive you and be with you to seek the forgiveness of others and help you to overcome that temper by His Spirit. And you say, my temper controls me while well, He came to set you free, those who were enslaved to be free. And you say, I'm angry all the time. He came to give you peace. 
You say, I'm angry at God. Your anger is misplaced. Place it on sin and aim it at self, not at God. But if you do that and you repent, you turn to Him, you believe in Him and call on Christ, never again will the wrath of God be kindled against you. He will forgive you and will be angry at you no more. All of the anger of God when a person turns to Christ is turned away from them and on to Christ. God is willing to forgive and give peace and give joy and give gentleness to all who come to Him through Christ. Lastly, if you are paltry and indifferent to sin and to the suffering around you. He wants you to be angry and do not sin. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us and forgive me for times that we are angry unrighteously. And for so many times when we have looked at our anger and thought it was righteous and justified and there was nothing righteous about it at all. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in us to purify us from all unrighteousness. That you would help us, if we are going to be angry, to be angry as you are and to recognize when we're not and to have the control to turn away from it None of this is from us, Lord, but from you. It is your Spirit at work in us so that none of us can boast or think higher of ourselves. But we must turn to you for help. And Lord, are you not willing to help and work the things that you desire to be worked in your people? Surely, Lord, if you command something and we come to you confessing our need and asking for help, will you not help? Will you not give the Spirit to those who ask? Yes, you will, Lord. And so we thank you. We thank you that you will and desire and are ready to work righteousness in us. And I pray, God, that, that your forgiveness would be known more strongly than your condemnation. All of us have reason to repent, Lord, because all of us have been sinfully angry at one time or another and in many ways and in various places, Lord. Thank you that you are willing and ready to forgive. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who do not go on getting angry like the world, but don't just... The world is angry and I'm going to adopt that and do the same thing. No, Lord, let us have the righteousness of Christ. That in our anger we would not sin. Thank you, Lord, that there is freedom. That there is release. That there is hope and deliverance. And Lord, I pray for, for fathers and mothers and marriages. I pray that, Lord, we would be restrained in our tempers and Lord forgiving and gracious when we are sinned against 
Oh Lord, help us. We are in great need of you. And it's to you we look for help and for strength and for deliverance and for forgiveness and for salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.